This EHIV Review Special Edition program is presented by DKB Med Radio. Welcome to the continuation of this special edition of EHIV Review, focused on the needs of marginalized populations living with HIV. The Multimedia Expert Commentary section has recently been published and is available without charge at ehivreview.org. In that part of the program, EHIV Review Program Director Justin Alps, a nurse educator at Boston Medical Center, described the recent evidence-based findings in, one, the disparities in HIV care in underserved populations, and two, identification and treatment of substance use in people living with HIV. Justin also reached out to two frontline clinicians currently working with these populations who provided additional commentary through short video clips. In this part of our special edition program, we'll be presenting the fuller video discussions with those additional experts. I'm Bob Busker, DKP Med Editorial Director and Managing Editor of EHIV Review. I'm here with the aforementioned Program Director, Justin Alves. Justin, thank you for joining us today. I'm glad to be here, Bob. Thank you for having me. Our first topic and our first learning objective is to identify the barriers that limit the participation and engagement of underserved populations in HIV prevention and treatment medication selection. In the multimedia part of this program, he spoke with Dr. Nikki Matani, a primary care physician specializing in addiction medicine and HIV. Before we get to the rest of that discussion, if you would please, tell us a little bit about Dr. Matani and why you chose to speak with her. Well, I think it will be very obvious to folks why we why I chose to speak with Dr. Matani. Um, she is not only a, a seasoned care provider, but she really has a passion uh, for the work that she does. And she works out of a, a really unique street-based clinic, uh, the Whole Person Integrated Care Clinic in San Francisco um, through the Department of Public Health. And she really specializes in the care of people who are experiencing homelessness and substance use disorder um, and who are also uh, living with HIV. And so really felt like the right fit to, to sort of shed some light on some of the novel approaches that they're using to engage these marginalized communities. And with that as introduction, here's the rest of the discussion between Justin Elves and Dr. Nikki Matani. Hi, Dr. Matani. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. I, I'm so excited to sort of get into this. And I'm wondering if you want to start by telling us a little bit about the patient population that you serve um, and some of the barriers that they experience when they try and engage in care. Yeah. So, you know, like the, the, the primary goal of the clinic that I work at is to provide what we call transitional primary care to patients who are experiencing homelessness or unstable housing here in San Francisco, who due to factors related to homelessness are unable to engage in, in the more traditional models of primary care. And you know, we're, we're a status neutral clinic, meaning that we see both people with HIV as well as patients who do not have HIV, although many of our patients without HIV are at very high risk and could benefit substantially like, quite a bit from, from being on PrEP. Um, and because we're, we, you know, we're lucky that we're in a city that has so many other phenomenal HIV primary care clinics, um, including some, you know, prim traditional primary care clinics that actually have specialized programs for people experiencing homelessness, the patients that we see at our clinic um, who have HIV represent probably some of, you know, the most vulnerable 
patients in San Francisco who've really fallen through the cracks of these other programs. And ultimately what that means is that in addition to homelessness or unstable housing, the vast majority of our patients also have comorbid substance use disorders, particularly methamphetamine and opioid use disorder. And many also have comorbid uh, severe mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and bipolar disorder. Uh, you know, the, the, the demographics, I think, of our patient population also differ considerably from, from others in San Francisco as a whole, um, both in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds, as well as racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, all of our patients, almost all of our patients are, are publicly insured. Um, and a lot of them are actually uninsured when they first start seeing us. So we need to, to coordinate care with, with social work to, to help them get access to insurance. Um, and all of these patient level factors result in barriers to, to HIV care engagement. But I think the most difficult barriers to manage are, are really related to lack of housing and, and mental health conditions. Again, you know, including substance use. And no matter how good our medications are, we can't really expect people to, to take oral medications every day if they don't have a home and some sort of safe place to store their medications, especially when you know, their, their tents and belongings are routinely being swept by law enforcement. But beyond the, the logistical issues of, of taking medications every day or even receiving injections monthly, our patients also just you know, face a number of competing priorities. And the everyday kind of trauma associated with homelessness makes life really unpredictable. So managing their HIV is understandably not always going to be their highest priority if they don't know where they're going to sleep tonight or you know where they're going to be able to find food to eat or how they're going to manage to, to stay out of opioid or stimulant withdrawal. And when you say you talk a lot about falling through the cracks, right? I mean, patients who are complicated, like you're describing, um, do you mean that they they don't engage in traditional models of care? Or like, what is it that like makes yours sort of the sweet spot for folks? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, we're a very low barrier clinic. And so we're centrally located in an area of town where a lot of our patients um, might reside if they if they don't have housing. Um, there's a lot of homeless shelters in the area. There's also um, areas of the city where there's more, more types of encampments. Um, so just by being closer to them, um, that makes us lower barrier. But also we have a walk-in model. Um, we call it an open access care model where patients become six days a week, um, eight hours per day, six day, days a week, uh, and see a doctor, see a nurse, get medications, get injectable medications, get oral medications, um, also see social work, um, get labs on site. So having all of this in a, in a single location, and then also in addition to this kind of central hub, we also have um, what we call like satellite clinical sites that are embedded in it's like a provider nursing duo, or maybe just a provider or just a nurse. Um, from our clinic or from our kind of overall network of care embedded into places like a, a syringe access site or a homeless shelter, places that patients might already frequent, um, even if they're not searching for, for medical care, not necessarily care seeking. So quite literally, like identifying those barriers and then just like bringing care to people. That's the goal. Yeah. Um, and recognizing that, you know, treating HIV in particular might not be the highest priority for some of our patients. Definitely preventing HIV might not be on their radar. Um, so so bringing them the both the information as well as the, the way to to have those things treated um, to them as in as low barrier of a way as we can uh, without having to make them go to the pharmacy or, or go somewhere different for labs. 
um, if we're going to streamline it all in one location. And, and you mentioned some of the different sort of medication options, talking about injectables, talking about new oral agents even. How do medication options really affect the way you think about choosing medications for patients or or even like this patient has a lot of barriers to care, so I'm going to choose a medication like X, so to speak? Sure. So, you know, assuming that a patient doesn't have significant baseline resistance um, in terms of HIV, my go-to for any new patient with HIV that I see is to encourage that they use a single tablet um, oral HIV regimen, usually either uh, Darunavir, Kobe, TAF, FTC, or BIC, TAF, FTC. And I really try to, to encourage uh, Darunavir, Kobe, TAF, FTC as the first line, just due to a particularly high barrier to, to resistance. Um, because it's, it's, it's common that our patients will only be able to remember to take their medications four to five times per week, sometimes less. And I don't want to put them at risk for, for developing integrase inhibitor resistance in that setting. Um, but it's also, you know, Darunavir, Kobe, TAF, FTC is a really big pill. It's a large tablet. Um, so that can be a barrier for, for some patients. And so if they, if they don't have regular access to water in particular, or they, they don't like swallowing pills, um, in those cases, we'd, we'd go with big TAF, FTC or an something similar that's a, an oral tablet regimen. Um, in terms of single tablet regimens that I try to stay away from, I really try to stay away from rolpivirine containing medications just because the necessity to, to take that with food, um, also of a tiger beer, just given the, the lower barrier to resistance. And, you know, do you have thoughts about like, so rolpivirine and sort of the oral formulation sort of concerns about food. Do you have those same thoughts with injectables? Yeah. So like, a capo tegravir rolpivir yeah. combo there. Yeah. So, so what I um what was meant to follow up with. So, in addition to you know, we start with the oral meds. Um, a lot of patients can't take oral meds, um, for a variety of reasons, or they they have trouble adhering to their medications. So, have a place to store their meds. So, over the past two years, we've also developed a pilot low barrier long acting injectable ARV program. And we try to be really judicious with deciding who is appropriate for injectable antiretrovirals because they've really never formally been studied in settings like ours and in patients who have severe mental health comorbidities. Um, um, and also because it's just it's hard sometimes to contact our patients to remind them for when their injectables are due. And so we, we really want to make sure that when we do start people on injectables, we can make sure that they, they're coming in every month. In terms of your, your question about rotivirine, um, uh, Injectable ropivirine, uh, do I worry about the, the oral, with, with oral ropivirine, you need to take, take that with food. With a, I think it's 250 calorie, 250 calorie meal. Um, and, and so previously we really kind of stayed away from that. Now, if a patient doesn't have any baseline resistance to RPV, that's great. We can, at least they, they kind of um, satisfy that criteria for not, uh, for, for being eligible for, for cabotegravir ropivirine as an injectable. Um, but in addition to kind of the, the medical reasons that somebody might be contraindicated for cab RPV, which are, you know, on, on kind of like the, the package insert, we also kind of particularly only use long-acting injectable ART for patients that are already kind of well-connected to our clinic um, or one of our satellite clinics and know at least one or two of our providers well so that they feel comfortable continuing to come back. Um, we're not worried about that after, you know, somebody getting one or two injections and then not wanting to come back or not able to come back. Um, and we also try to prioritize long-acting injectables really for patients who don't seem to have any other options because they've demonstrated an inability to, to tolerate oral ART or to, to adhere to oral ART for a variety of reasons. Um, 
And yeah, you know, the, the reason for that is really the, we're kind of building the evidence um, along with a few, few other clinics who are doing very similar things. And we've learned from our, our neighbors over at Ward 86, who are an academic HIV clinic in our in our city, um, who kind of paved the way for this, um, but want to keep this uh, focused right now and in a way that we can make sure that we're, we're doing this safely and people aren't um, people aren't starting meds and then and then coming off of them immediately. Well, and what it sounds like is that you really prioritize the patient rapport as the prerequisite for the injectable. Not like there's there is some science piece there, but there's also this like the requirement is I need to know you're going to come back, right, and get that injection with us. Yeah, that, that, you know that's that's really critical, and we you know we try to make this as low barrier as possible. We don't want them to have like X Y Z criteria. The the primary thing that we look for is is, is you know people are, are motivated to start this. Um, and they want to start this. And then once, once it's clear that they, they really want to start this on their own, it's not something that we're kind of pushing on them or anything. Um, then making sure that they have the resources available to them to make sure that they're, they're actually able to continue to come into care. So for example, if a patient, um, really wanted to start long acting ART, but we've only seen them once or twice over like say like the past year, we probably want to, to work with them, maybe connect them with case management, have them, um, come to our clinic at least at least monthly for a couple of months. And then if it seems like they're able to engage with us or we're able to, to, to locate them like con- consistently in the community, then, then we can start transitioning them to, to long acting. And, you know, sometimes the patient has a very low CD4 count and you don't have less time that you can really wait um, or that you want to wait. Um, so I think trying to protocolize things, we, we do have protocols and we try to stick to them, but I think out, even outside of HIV care and outside of the injectable world, it can be hard to to really protocolize things when we have such a diverse patient population. Well, and I think that that brings me to sort of my next question for you is there's a lot of focus um, about ending the HIV epidemic and obviously long acting prevention medications, including implantables and injectables have a role there. But I'm wondering how can we truly try and start thinking about how do we use these medications in a patient-centered way like you're talking about mm-hmm. with that flexibility um, to meet that need of a lot of our marginalized communities because they don't necessarily fit in the box we'd like them to fit in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think really to, to end the HIV epidemic, we really need to think about patients more holistically outside of just the scope of HIV care because you know, in a vacuum, HIV itself is, is actually not super difficult to treat. And we really need to focus much more on the upstream barriers to medication adherence and HIV transmi- transmission, um, including you know treatment and prevention of substance use disorders and, and mental health conditions. Um, but taking a step back and focusing on, on what we can do more immediately as, as medical providers and specifically as, as HIV medical providers, I do think that being able to offer marginalized patient populations more options in terms of access to injectable ART and future innovations in the pipeline, including implantables, could make a significant dent in, in reducing HIV transmission among you know, some of our, our most highly affected communities and sort of inching towards the, you know, ending, ending the HIV epidemic. I will say that with implantables, I think, you know, I, I love the idea of implantables and I think anything that we can do to lengthen the time interval during which patients are receiving um, therapeutic drug levels, um, and, and having to you know reduce their, their requirements to come into clinic and get labs, the better, and that's helpful. 
Um, but I also think we need more data to understand patients' preferences with regard to long-acting injections versus implantables. Um, you know, we have we have quite a few patients. We have, we have some patients, I should say, on, on long-acting injectables right now. Um, but I've also heard some patients say, you know, implantables kind of feel more akin to some sort of like tracking device. And there can be quite a bit of pain um, and more injection site reactions with implantables. So I think we need to do a little bit more. We need to create a little bit more data on acceptability and tolerability of those agents. Well, and really taking that patient-centered approach that maybe this is not the one for you, maybe this other. Mm -hmm. I think of it a little like um, contraception nowadays of like, there's so many versions, right? Like, which is the right one for you, right? Exactly. Um, And so we've gone over a lot of different stuff. And so I'm really trying to hone in on our learning objective about identifying barriers that limit participation and engagement of underserved populations in HIV prevention and treatment. I'm wondering if you have some takeaways for our listeners today, like a top five takeaway that we can give to folks um, to really drive home some of these points. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'd say, you know, number one, in addition to HIV care, making sure that your clinic is, is set up to provide care for comorbid mental health conditions and substance use disorders. Um, two, you know, when, when prescribing ART to patients who face adherence barriers, try to use single tablet regimens um, that have a high barrier to resistance whenever possible. Um, then we, you know, we really do not yet have robust population level evidence for uh, long-acting injectables in, in highly underserved patient populations at this point. But I do think that long-acting injectables are likely to provide meaningful benefits to reducing barriers to HIV, sorry, sorry barriers to adherence um, to oral meds. And we do have patients who are doing really well on that right now. Um, however, long-acting injectables should really only be started in the context of you know, well-designed, highly supportive programs that ideally have the ability to provide, you know, things like mobile street outreach, reminders, um, and ways to contact patients who might not have access to a cell phone or my chart or other ways that traditional clinics are are contacting patients. And so just a huge thank you to you, Dr. Matani, for being with us today and sharing a little bit of your know-how and knowledge straight from the clinic for our providers and listeners today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Nice discussion. Justin, anything you want to add to her key summary points? I mean, I really just want to reiterate a lot of what Dr. Matani said. It's about providing truly patient-centered care, right? She talks about meeting all of the needs of the patients who show up. So the mental health conditions, the substance use disorders, and the HIV all at once. Um, Really being flexible and having a highly supportive program that can meet the needs of really vulnerable, marginalized populations with things like housing and things like, you know, uh, direct service support. And then really thinking about how we as a medical community can use some of the innovations we have, like long-acting injectables, single tablet regimens, to really, you know, improve people's quality of life and really prevent uh, resistance later on in sort of the development or progression of their disease. Good observations, Justin. Going back now to your commentary issue, you explained how people living with HIV who use illicit drugs and those with substance abuse disorders, and those substances would include tobacco and alcohol, are a high-risk population. For an additional perspective, you called on Professor Vanessa Lucas from Boston University's Chobanian and Avedisian School of Medicine. 
Before we go to the rest of that discussion, uh, if you would please, Justin, tell us a little bit about Professor Lucas and why you chose to speak with her. So, I mean, Vanessa Lucas and I have uh, actually worked alongside each other for quite some time caring for patients. And when I needed to think of someone who really understood what it meant clinically as well as academically to take care of folks with substance use disorder and HIV, she was the first person who came to mind. Um, she practices in a primary care setting, but has also practiced in the community and really has a grasp on how to do this in a practical and pragmatic way. Keeping in mind our second learning objective, describe strategies to improve identification and management of substance use in people living with HIV. Here's the rest of the discussion between Justin Alves and Professor Vanessa Lucas. And I'm really pleased that we have Vanessa Lucas here to join me today to talk about addiction and HIV. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you because I know you have a lot of experience with with addiction and with HIV. And I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about how addiction impacts your practice and impacts your patients with HIV. My clinical specialty is to treat patients with substance use disorder and also those with chronic mental health issues in primary care. So I really started seeing patients with the HIV secondary to that, actually. Um, patients with HIV were referred to me in the community health setting due to their comorbid addictions. So all of the folks I really treat living with HIV have um, an addiction as well, whether that be um, substance use disorder of one substance or multiple substances, which is often the case. The patient population uh, that I see is very complex for that reason and requires not just a close provider patient relationship, but also the support that we are able to offer offer often in our um, community or outpatient settings, so additional support from nursing, for example. Um, a lot of the patients that I were seeing in the community may have been seen previously in a larger hospital setting by um, an infectious disease provider and found that some of the barriers to accessing care in that setting were really challenging. So to treat them in their um, addiction treatment program actually made a lot more sense because we could kind of do a lot of these overlap overlapping like, treatments and interventions at the same time. And that's really where I started my, my care for, for this population. So really what you were seeing is people with HIV were being referred to you for addiction stuff, and then you were taking over sort of everything. Exactly. Exactly. So being referred really for addiction and then really seeing the the bigger picture with patients and the complexity and all of these overlapping, whether they be acute or long term medical problems associated both with having HIV and addiction, it was easier to treat them within our, our setting um, under the addiction sort of umbrella. <laughs> so more like becoming like that medical home and like starting to take care of patients and oh, you need a refill of your ARVs or you need a refill of your buprenorphine all in the same spot. Yes, exactly. And depending on the substances people are using, often really complicating their HIV 
related medical problems. So an example being like risk for oral thrush if someone is also, you know, smoking methamphetamines or, or crack, right? And so really sort of finding that it was um, a better care model to use that like medical home or, or that nursing care manager model. And so, you know, I think I mentioned buprenorphine, you mentioned crack and meth. And I think a lot of people think about, you know, illicit substances when we talk about addiction and HIV. Um, I think probably from the beginning of the epidemic, that was sort of what it was, you know, framed as like people who used heroin were at risk for HIV. And so I'm wondering, how do you think substances that are maybe less stigmatized, things like alcohol, things like nicotine, are affecting your patients with HIV? Substances like nicotine and alcohol are, are often in certain ways even more challenging to address because they are socially acceptable, but also they, the use of, of um, nicotine, um, whether that be you know, smoking cigarettes or, or vaping, um, and then additionally using alcohol really increased in, in this population. So um, we're seeing a lot of folks using high volumes of alcohol, you know, using nicotine products in, in large quantities. And so really um, increasing risks, not only associated with, with other substances of use, but then additionally increasing, you know, risks around challenges to adherence to ART and, and additional medical complications. And so within your practice, are you like purposely tackling those sort of less stigmatized substances too, or are those things that often get forgotten, you think? I would say as a newer provider, you know, in my past uh, sort of treatment pattern, I may have um, given less attention to nicotine and tobacco than I should have. Now where I am as a provider, I find I talk about it actually quite frequently, almost at every appointment, um, and really trying to tackle it, uh, really, especially as it relates to um, vaping and nicotine products, um, really trying to understand what products people are using, how frequently they're using them, and really trying to implement um, any sort of nicotine replacement therapies or smoking cessation supports for folks, because Really, those are the things that that can lead to longer term complications as well. For example, like screening for lung cancer, right? And and you know, patients living with HIV, you know, really living long, fulfilling lives. Um, and so encountering some of these um, chronic medical conditions that we maybe hadn't seen in the past. So screening for for something like bladder cancer or lung cancer becoming really important for someone with HIV and also that that has a long history of nicotine use. And, you know, earlier you sort of mentioned how your addiction primary care practice was becoming more of like a medical home. And we were seeing a lot of that sort of pop up in the literature. We write about this a lot about how do we integrate care so patients don't have to receive siloed care in the same way. And I'm wondering if you want to comment on some of the integrated care models you've been a part of or that you see really effective in practice? Two models really come to mind based on my clinical experience. The first being the nurse care manager model, which really uses nurses to extend access to care. So I can see a lot more patients as a provider and have those have really complicated patients um, that are coming in quite frequently 
uh, being seen by a nurse that can then help to carry out my plan and continue to reassess and provide those really important hands-on interventions that maybe as a provider, I would have less time to do so. The, uh, the nurse care manager model really lends itself to facilitating really beautiful care for, for folks that, that have HIV and, and comorbid mental health or, or substance use conditions. Um, additionally, I have used a lot of group-based care in my experience. So uh, sometimes maybe specific to a particular population uh, or a particular uh, severity of a disease state, but generally providing group-based medical care that allows me to see a lot more patients at once. So for folks that are really stable even, that really just want to check in and, and have some of that peer support, group is fabulous for that. Additionally, for um, patients that I want to see all the time, like I really want to have my, my point of contact with them maybe every week, but as a provider, I don't have the, the ability to really have that person in my schedule once a week. Having group-based care really allows folks to, to have a touch point with me, whether that be for refills or for labs, which is particularly important uh, for patients with HIV or um, for additional STI screening. All of those things really work well in, in that group-based medical model. And then I would say lastly about group-based care, I really enjoy it as a provider and find that it, it really can become patient-centered in a way that sometimes an individual visit doesn't allow for that time uh, to do so in like a 20-minute or a 15-minute visit versus like an hour-long group where I can really hear the barriers or the successes of my patients that, that are living with HIV that have substance use as well. That's fabulous. And I think those are two models of care that like we use in primary care for other things, for things like, you know, diabetes, um, that perhaps we could really sort of adapt and use more frequently um, in HIV care. And so that sort of brings us to the end of our time together, Vanessa. And I'm wondering um, if you could, for our listeners, really try and, you know, bring this down to a couple key points. What are the things folks really need to know about sort of identifying and managing addiction and HIV at the same time? People living with HIV are at increased risk for substance use disorders across the board, which includes nicotine, alcohol, stimulants, opioids, really increasing challenges around viral suppression and managing additional medical complications. And that would be my first point. I would also say that identifying substance use disorders and implementing prompt intervention, whether that be medications or behavioral interventions based on a patient-centered care plan is critical to improving management of patients living with HIV and managing other related conditions long-term. Lastly, I like to really highlight that due to the stigma associated with both conditions and the potential for prior negative experiences with the healthcare system, it is really important to approach assessment and treatment of this patient population with curiosity, empathy, and humility, really to build rapport and effectively engage patients in longitudinal care and really implementing some of these other models like the nurse care manager or group-based interventions to support that. 
Vanessa, I just want to give you a huge thank you sort of for being with me today and talking about this. Um, I know this is an issue that is like near and dear to my heart and yours. And so I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent in-depth conversation. Justin, anything you want to add to her key summary points? I mean, I, I just want to reiterate again, a lot of what Vanessa said is that we need to be thinking about not just screening people with substance use disorder for HIV, but screening people with HIV for substance use disorder and recognizing that substance use disorders, whether they, they be illicit substances or illicit legal substances, um, are things that we have tools to both identify, treat, and manage, um, just like HIV. And so um, trying to use our relationships with patients to address stigma and really help them, you know, take that first step in identifying that they have a problem and starting treatment. Thank you, Justin. We're about to wrap things up now, but I want to give you the last word on the topic. So if you would, please. I mean, thanks, Bob, for giving me a final chance to sort of say something here. I really think the thing that I want to drive home is that HIV is no longer a death sentence. And so all of the chronic health issues that we had worried about in marginalized communities for decades, for, for centuries, really, um, things like hypertension, things like substance use, are all now really becoming problematic for people with HIV because people are living, which is a great thing, right? And now what we need to do is really use our skills and our know-how from centuries of work and social influences and determinants of health to really try and maximize quality of life for people with HIV. And that might mean, you know, thinking about how we use long-acting injectables or implantables more readily, both for HIV prevention and HIV treatment. Um, and it may also mean really thinking about the way we incorporate HIV care into the clinical space and thinking about how we really give opportunities to people who have been traditionally marginalized by the medical system. Nice summation. Thank you, Justin. Thanks so much, Bob. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here um, and really the opportunity to sort of shed light on this really important topic. And I also want to thank our guests, Dr. Nikki Matani from the San Francisco Department of Public Health and Professor Vanessa Lucas from Boston University's Chobanian and Avedesian School of Medicine. And our thanks to all our listeners who've made EHIV Review the go-to program for in-depth expert opinion. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.